every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. It's Thursday, the 27th of April, and this is Peter Lewis with the latest business and finance headlines on Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. U.S. regulators are meeting with private sector banks to come up with a plan to stabilise regional lender First Republic Bank after its shares crashed almost 50% on Tuesday and then slid another 30% on Wednesday. However, one potential bidder for the assets said an ordinary sale was unlikely because it would have to take place at such a large discount to book value that it would worsen First Republic's losses. Standard Chartered reported better-than-expected pre-tax profits in the first quarter of 2023 as higher interest rates and increased trading income boosted income at the Emerging Markets Focus Bank. Profits before tax jumped 21% to US$1.8 billion for the first three months of the year, beating analysts' forecasts of US$1.4 billion, the bank reported on Wednesday. China will send a special envoy to Ukraine to conduct peace negotiations with all parties involved in the war. The move comes after President Xi Jinping on Wednesday made his first call to Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky since Russia's invasion more than a year ago. President Xi said negotiations are the only viable way out of the Ukraine crisis. President Zelensky described the phone call as long and meaningful, but said there could be no peace unless Russia gives back the land it took at the start of the invasion and leaves Crimea. The US is significantly stepping up its commitment to use its nuclear arsenal to defend South Korea in the face of threats from North Korea. An agreement, which the two sides have called the Washington Declaration, will give Seoul a greater voice in consultations on a potential American nuclear response to a North Korean attack in return for not developing its own nuclear weapons. President Biden said the US-South Korea Mutual Defense Treaty was ironclad. That includes our commitment to extended deterrence, Mr Biden said, referring to the US nuclear umbrella that helps protect its allies. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Alex Frew McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for TheStreet.com. With a view from Singapore is Jeff Howey, market strategist at the Singapore Exchange. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. In US trading Wednesday, shares, bonds, the US dollar, oil and gold were all lower. U.S. stocks largely fell on Wednesday as concerns over First Republic Bank overshadowed strong tech earnings. The S&P 500 slid 0.4%, closing at 4,056. The Dow declined 229 points or 0.7% to end at 33,302 after trading up more than 100 points earlier in the session. The Nasdaq Composite added half a percent to finish at 11,854, trimming gains after jumping as much as 1.4% earlier in the day. Shares of First Republic Bank dropped another 30% after a 50% crash on Tuesday. The regional bank said late Monday its deposits dropped 40% in the first quarter, reigniting concerns about the health of the banking system. Shares of Microsoft jumped over 7% to the highest point in over a year after beating Wall Street's expectations on both earnings and profits in the January to March quarter. After the closing bell, shares of Meta platforms surged 11.5% after the Facebook parent reported its first sales increase in four quarters and issued optimistic guidance. 
Meta's first quarter sales rose 3% to 28.7 billion US dollars. For the second quarter, Meta expects revenue of between 29.5 billion and 32 billion US dollars above analyst forecasts. Shares of Meta were up 74% this year prior to the earnings report. Hong Kong shares rebounded from a three day slump on Wednesday, but were still hovering close to a four week low. The Hang Seng Index rose 139 points, or 0.7%, to 19,757. Since reaching a 2023 high on the 27th of January, the Hang Seng has fallen 13%. The Tech Index rebounded 1.3%, following a 3.5% slump on Tuesday. Tech shares listed in the city are now down 9% over the past seven trading days and off almost 20% from their 2023 peak hit on January the 27th. Futures markets are indicating a flat open for the Hang Seng this morning. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was flat at 3,264. The index has lost almost 4% over the last five days. Stocks listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen have together lost almost 3.6 trillion renminbi. That's about 520 billion US dollars in market capitalization since April the 18th, when China reported quarterly growth of 4.5%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have our regular Thursday commentator with us, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Alex Frew McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. Morning to you, Alex. Good morning, Peter. Um, it sounds like First Republic Bank is on the brink again, um, Andrew. The US regulators are meeting with private sector banks to come up with a plan to stabilise the regional lender. We, we thought that maybe um, this was all stabilising a couple of weeks ago, but it, it seems not. What, what do you think? Well, remember, all this started with SEB, so there is absolutely nothing new. In other words, federal, that just didn't jump out of the box, uh, so to speak. And the illnesses are the absolutely plain vanilla ones. In other words, assets uh, have uh, melted away, partially, particularly their mortgages because of the higher interest rates. And this was followed up by flight of deposits of uh, more than 250000 uh, dollars worth. In other words, these the ones that are uninsurable, and therefore people have pulled them away. You know, uh, what can one say? Uh, it is uh, the classical thing of uh, assets not matching liabilities. Mm. So Very simple. there's no good options then, are there? In, in that case, what, what do the regulators do? Well, uh, basically, here we go again. Uh, since the likelihood of finding somebody that will buy it not so cheaply as to completely eliminate any value uh, in the bank, it is, of course, uh, the government steps in because if the bank closes up, then the deposits, either all the deposits are insured, as they did with the previous three banks, or they are not insured, and that could start uh, yet another, no, I don't want to exaggerate here, seismic wave. The Fed is simply standing back to see uh, if somebody is uh, either brave or foolish or clever enough to step in and buy the bank. Uh, the fact that the equities has been wiped out, it used to trade at about 120, and now it trades at 6, 95% drop. Again, uh, shows you that at least the equi- there's nothing to do with the equity holders. 
what I would like to know, but I don't have the data, is to see what is the bond situation with the banks. In other words, what are the kind of uh, of loans they have, sorry, of debt they have other, of course, than the deposits. Alex, do you think anyone is going to be brave or foolish enough to step in here and save First Republic Bank? It'll be interesting to see. I mean, so far, no, it doesn't look like there is. And we have seen that the US regulators have backstopped these previous bank failures. So uh, I would expect to see that happen again. Um, but uh, so far, no one has stepped forward. Uh, and we saw that it was necessary for Silicon Valley Bank to have that. Uh, government uh, backstop. So uh, I would suspect that that's going to happen again. Um, so far, the uh, bank uh, failure situation has pretty much been contained, certainly to the West and mainly to the US. And while this does affect the tech sector again, since uh, First National is based in San Francisco, uh, we can see from the gains uh, after the close yesterday in, in Microsoft and Meta, that the tech sector is really taking that in, in stride. So, um, mm. so far, so good on, on, on the tech sector, you know, freezing up in terms of credit or anything like that. That doesn't seem to be happening. Whatever happens, the big banks are going to end up paying for this, aren't they? Because unless one of them does step in and, and bite the bullet and, and take the bank over, the FDIC, uh, the Federal Dis Deposit Insurance Corporation, will step in, um, bail out the depositors, and then they they raise their money through a levy on all the other all the other banks in the US. So, uh, whatever happens, US banks are going to pay for this, aren't they? Yeah, Peter, just whoa, 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 just one moment. The flight of deposits from uh, the First Federal uh, has gone to other banks. So, in other words, th these banks are benefiting. Uh, from uh, from their pain. I have no idea where and how, but uh, we were talking about several hundreds of billions of U.S. deposits living. You know, the deposits cannot live. That's another thing that I will, in my dying gasp, I will <laughs> say, please, please don't make the mistakes. Deposits cannot leave the system unless there is something significant in the balance sheet of the bank, namely the assets don't match the liabilities and the two things cancel out mm. and therefore deposits simply disappear. Deposits cannot disappear unless bank lending also disappears. Mm. Okay, this is such an iron rule and people just won't understand it. Deposits left the system. No, they didn't. They went to some other bank. Mm. And, uh, and they haven't left the planet. They're still somewhere here in the banking Absolutely. system. They are, very much, they are very much so. Okay, so this business that uh, the Fed will need to, to pay up depends which deposits are still left with the bank. And if they are the small ones, in general, they tend to be a small minority of the sum total. I'm talking completely out of ignorance here. It might be completely different in the case of, uh, of, of this bank. But there is a rearrangement of deposits, isn't there, in that maybe some of the banks who end up having to pay for this didn't get the benefit of it in the first place. And also quite a bit of those deposits are now sitting in, in money market funds rather than, uh, rather than as bank deposits. But it's a, they haven't uh, gone Peter, anywhere. Peter, Peter, it's, it's a rearrangement, sitting, isn't it? Peter, 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 wow, 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 wow. They're not sitting in money, in, in, uh, in money account deposits. Remember, they cannot leave the system. If I take my deposits and I give it to a money managing firm, okay, it goes to the bank of the money managing firm. Okay, it simply changes ownership from a different mm. bank. And incidentally, the flight of banks, the flight of deposits would have inevitably would have gone to the big banks, not the small bank. There's no point of <laughs> keeping your deposits in a small bank and then taking them out and putting them in a smaller bank. 
yeah, they would have gone to, to to the likes of Bank of America, of Citibank, of uh, you know, big chunky ones. Mm. Alex, what what is uh, the think... risk that this spreads to to other banks? Because First Republic is not the only one with this particular business model of very concentrated customer base in a particular sector. Yes, I mean this seems to be rolling on and on, doesn't it? And uh, I think there is some form of of moral hazard in that First Republic. I think I call it First National a second year, but First Republic seems to have run into trouble in much the same way as Silicon Valley Bank um, by not anticipating the rapid rise of interest rates and therefore uh, getting a misalignment of of their their assets and their obligations. So um, it, it does seem that that's a, a persistent problem uh, in the U.S. banking sector in particular, and with the Fed sort of uh, uh, promising to guarantee deposits um, bankers are sort of getting off the hook so to speak for this mistake uh, while the, the bank may fail in this situation um, no one is really paying the penalty of, of making that mistake mm. well, well how much then is could this model be a problem overseas i mean the u.s is not the only country with these uh, types of regional banks. If you look at Japan, for example, they have over a hundred sort of regional banks. Uh, there's been well, all sorts of efforts yeah, over the years to try and merge them, but but they're still there, aren't they? Is, is there could there be a problem in in other markets? It, it's the Fed that's been raising rates so fast um, that, that this has caused a problem. So Japan has not been raising rates, and we've got a interest rate meeting starting today, at which uh, it's likely that rates and policy will stay the same. So, no, I don't think that situation would apply in Japan. Um, there are too many banks in Japan, so uh, they would like to encourage continued consolidation. And there are other issues in the banking sector there, but cross-holdings of shares and uh, unwillingness to force uh, inefficient firms to, to sort of uh, uh, reform. But uh, I don't see the same situation developing in, in certainly in Japan or Asia where rates have not been going up. And Peter, without being snooty, as you say, in Japan, we're having about 100 banks. In the United States, take a deep breath, we have 4,000. Mm. Okay, so that's that's the price to pay for having a very large number of very small banks. Mm. But these banks, well, a lot of banks in Japan do hold a large amount of treasury bonds, don't they? And they must be sitting on some quite big losses. Yes, they, they hold KGBs that aren't making them any money as well, so... Um, they've been very keen to see Japan move off its uh, negative interest rates that would finally, therefore, uh, benefit them with their, with their JGBs that used to be their default holding. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's not been a good profitability situation with Japanese banks. Now, another thing markets are starting to pay more attention to is the debt ceiling uh, issue in the U.S. The cost of insuring against a default in U.S. government debt jumped to a record high as so-called X-day nears when the US Treasury will be unable to raise new funds unless Congress approves an increase in the government debt ceiling. Andrew, how much attention should we be paying to this? God, I have a huge temptation to tell you, to tell you zero attention. You know, I counted, <laughs> I counted since the year 2008, there have been five, including this one, six periods where we were expecting that the U.S. government is going to default because they are not raising the ceiling. I mean, this has become such a pathetic, repeated performance that either 
They should be ashamed of letting this happen. Or go ahead and do it. Mm. Okay, yeah. But, uh, imp- impose the ceiling, okay, and let's see, and let's see what happens. But, this... uh, but of course, they are not going to. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, it sounds stupid. Who am I to say that they should, uh, they should threaten whom? I imagine the federal government, uh, nobody else. But there you go. This, I mean, this is all a product of party politics in the U.S., and I, I do see that the House of Representatives has yesterday, you know, passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling. So I agree with Andrew that it's an ongoing story of U.S. interest with little border impact and the situation that's produced by American politicians, solved by American politicians, and will, again, probably be solved. I mean, it is certainly true, isn't it, that we have this every year and it goes to the brink and then every time enough Republicans cave in uh, to get a a bill passed and then uh, the Treasury can start funding itself again. But there does seem to be something a little bit different about this year. Maybe one of the things is that um, not everyone in Congress is sane. (laughs) Maybe that's always been the case, but it seems to be more the case at the moment. There's some extremist voices around that seem quite happy um, to stop the government being able to raise money um, and defaulting on its debt. So do you think maybe the risks are higher this year? Well, the, the whole issue... Should be should be put by a huge gun on their head, and he says, "Okay, we don't, we cannot borrow. Therefore, we are going to tax." Mm. All right. Now, of course, they are not going to pass the tax bills either. And the tax bills to be passed in the United States, you need to have, you need to be octogenarian when you are yearly fifteen before you see anything being passed. It's not, it's not that easy. But uh, the other threat is for the government to say, "Good, we'll close the government down," as they have done it in the past. Okay, except of course, except of course, the defense system. Uh, but uh, all all these are, are, are literally are childish, and they have been put to action. Remember, the government in the United States has closed down. They virtually put notices: please don't knock on the door of the agricultural department, except of the defense department. We are closed for the duration. Okay, so we can see the same thing again. Well, Janet Yellen, she was basically describing if if this happened as an economic catastrophe. Um, She was citing some external modelling, which says if a US default occurs, unemployment could leap past 2008 highs, GDP drop 10% and inflation return to over 10%. What what do you say to that? And uh, sorry, I'll stop now. Okay, I think it is a huge silent conspiracy to effectively defraud, debunk, and uh, bankrupt the Chinese government. Guess mm. which is the single biggest foreign holder of U.S. treasuries? <laughs> the Chinese government. So the United States will turn and say, sorry, we can't pay you, neither interest nor capital. You know, and again, I'm being facetious here. Alex, just to get back to Peter's point, I mean, there is this really radical wing of the Republican Party and a, a small minority of politicians who uh, who are really radical and basically just oppose absolutely anything that the Democrats propose uh, and refuse to cooperate, uh, you know, across the aisle. So um, that does uh, pose an ongoing problem uh, in American politics. And with uh, Trump having elected, you know, three Supreme Court justices, you sort of have this minority rule uh, where, you know, abortion has been, you know, effectively banned or they, they've removed Roe versus Wade anyway and allowed states to ban abortions, uh, which is a ridiculous situation in 2023. I mean, uh, really, 
going backwards. Um, but uh, it's a product of this really radical right-wing wing. And we'll see what happens as we head towards another presidential election and whether, you know, their candidate um, gets gets uh, nominated. They already held up the, you know, the election of the House Speaker until they got concessions from Kevin McCarthy. Um, and, you know, so he's having to deal with them. Uh, all power to them. I, I wouldn't want to deal with them myself. Well, let's turn our attention now to, to local markets. Hong Kong shares, they did recover from this three-day slump on Wednesday. Um, but nevertheless, the Hang Seng is still down 13% now from its year high. The tech index uh, is down 9% over the past seven trading days, off almost 20% uh, from its peak. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index uh, is the second worst performer amongst 90 global um, equity indices. And then on mainland China, the Shanghai Composite down 4% over the last uh, five trading days. And offshore investors have dumped more than $1.8 billion worth of Shanghai and Shenzhen listed equities um, in the last sort of week or so. Andrew, this all has started almost to the day, well, in fact, exactly to the day, um, when China uh, released its GDP report. What's gone wrong since then? Yeah, I, what that goes, goes wrong, it is first, this is not a correction. This is simply an emphasis of a different truth. The Hansen Index, year to day in US dollar terms, is down. In other words, if you put your money, have put your money on the first of January, you would have lost about one percent in US dollar terms. So it's doing. It's not just the the Chinese enterprises. What else has happened? I, I, I imagine. Not I imagine. I think there are two things. First, the fact that Hong Kong interest rates are bound to increase, and they are lagging behind. American interest rates. There is nothing in the peg to say that if the Fed is five uh, percent, the uh, the high bond should also be five percent. Absolutely not. That depends very much on what's happening to the exchange rate, and the exchange rate has been weakening. So, if the Fed increases interest rates, as I expect, then the interest rates will increase, and that's not very good for property. And also, the overall recovery, however much there has been cheering in the streets, and particularly tourism, is still quite weak and i'm not uh, uh, bring i'm not the, the bearer of bad news with a sadistic smile on my face uh, you know hong kong has been my my country for 37 years and it pains me to say it like that but we are not doing well very simple alex what do you put this down to well i mean uh, it's also partly a bit of a correction from an enormous rally that took place between the end of october um and and uh, late january so if you go back to um, the end of October, uh, the Hang Seng is still up by 34.5% since then. So um, really, I, th I think it's also a, a product of a uh, correction from that sort of uh, rapid and probably too too rapid uh, recovery uh, when China ended its uh, you know punitive COVID policies and so on. Um, the you know China recovery story has been hard to uh, price in or predict, um, as many things are, you know, in international economics right now, because uh, we're dealing with inflation in the West and how much that affects uh, demand for China's exports. And then you have these geopolitical currents uh, with, uh, you know, certainly U.S. President Biden um, intent on corralling Chinese tech, uh, which he seems to be doing successfully. Um, so, um, yeah, there, there, there are a few things working against Hong Kong equities at, at the moment. 
How much are these geopolitical tensions weighing on investors' minds? As you mentioned, we've got this sort of technology battle going on between the US and China. Um, we've also got the war in Ukraine, which has damaged uh, China's relations with the EU, although President Xi Jinping did pick up the phone to President Zelensky uh, today or last night in a call that was welcomed by the US and the EU. Do you think that could maybe lead to a, a softening of, of tensions and help improve the mood? Well, I, I can't believe that China is really going to play peacemaker in that situation since they don't even call what's happened an invasion or a war. It's still the Ukraine situation, if you listen to the Chinese side. So, um, you know, as a strong and staunch ally of Russia, they're not really in a strong position to uh, to, to play uh, peacemaker and, and be fair to both sides. But what I would say is that they can obviously pressure uh uh, Vladimir Putin. So I think it's in that respect that the call is welcome, that, that she has finally reached out um, to the, the Ukrainian side, you know, pointedly having not done so to date. So uh, think how long the war's been going on and they haven't even spoken to Ukraine or one of the sides until now. So um, then certainly not impartial. And I, I wouldn't expect to see their peace plan be the one that's implemented. I I think it's just positive that uh, that she has actually spoken to the Ukrainian leadership. Andrew, how much do you see geopolitical tensions as as weighing on the on the markets and do these latest developments, both in actually with President Xi calling President Zelensky, and then also we had President Biden and President Moon meeting um, in the U.S. They're talking about developing their alliance with the U.S., providing its nuclear umbrella to South Korea, providing it it doesn't develop its own nuclear weapons. A lot going on in the international front, isn't there? For should this should are investors concerned about this or relieved by anything they? Well, you know, I'm going to play the man from Mars that uh, has just dumped uh, its plane on uh, on Earth and he was given a Bloomberg screen on which he would see that uh, of the, uh, you know, three scores and something of markets, Malaysia, Thailand, India and Philippines and Hansang are all down year to date. Everybody else is up year to date. You know, it's dominated by greens and not by reds. So... <laughs> Not all of them at the same amount, not all of them at the same time, but with except with the exception of these, and these are all primarily uh, Asian uh, Asian markets. Uh, from what I can see here, if I take the United States and the European markets, they are all year up to date in US dollar terms. So if foreign if investors are terrified that uh, we're going to see Armageddon, they are clearly are not selling shares. Mm-hmm. Alex, final word to you. I mean, if you certainly look overseas, particularly U.S. markets, they seem to now have been shaking everything that's going on off higher interest rates, inverted yield curve, international tensions. Nothing seems to have stopped U.S. equities so far. Uh, yeah, inflation and the U.S. and what the Fed's going to do next uh, seems to be the main concern. And so in that sense, this First Republic failure is one of those bad news is good news situations where you know, it probably makes the Fed resist any further interest rate increases. And yeah. that's what really drove the tech industry to, to cater, crater, uh, tech stocks to crater. And so their pausing has really led to a, a massive rally. I mean, as, as you said, Meta stock up, you know, 68% or so year to date is, is incredible when you think about it. And a company, you know, like Microsoft up uh, 23%. I mean, these are huge gains so far this year in the tech sector. 
Well, thank you both very much. Good to hear your thoughts there. You heard there Alex Frew McMillan, who's a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com, and Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Jeff Howey, who is market strategist at the Singapore Exchange. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, Peter. Now, there's a few things going on which are worrying investors at the moment. First of all, um, it, banking concerns have, have reappeared with First Republic looking like it's on the brink. Um, how much should investors be concerned and, and watching what's going on in the US in the banking system? Hi, Peter. The, uh, I guess the, the key thing is uh, it's a financial stability risk and uh, financial stability is obviously one of the uh, you know, potential, the, the instability that can be created by the U.S. banking system has always been uh, one of these 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 potential downside risks along with the escalation of geopolitics and so forth. And so far, everything has, has kind of been contained, but at the same time, the risks associated with it are morphing, uh, mm-hmm. as we've seen with First Republic. So for us in the region... Uh, it was only two weeks ago that the IMF maintained that when it comes to financial risks, the global banking stress had had a limited impact in the Asian market so far. Direct exposure of Asian banks and investors to the likes of SVP, for instance, was minimal. And and, and over here, our financial system is generally well capitalised and importantly profitable. The FOMC minutes um, back in March, they did also show that it was the US regional banks with unusually large reliance on uninsured deposits as well as um, holdings of securities that had significant unrealized mark-to-market losses, and those had experienced larger declines in stock prices. And overall, you've got 95 banks in the S&P 500 that are down around 20% year-to-date versus the seven banks, the larger capitalized banks of the Dow Jones, which are around 2%. So you do have this, I guess, element of fragmentation there for for us in in um in singapore we we actually have uh three banks here and about 20 between 25 and 30 cents of every dollar that goes to work in the singapore stock market every day is actually going into our three banks Mm -hmm. and one of those banks uob released a business outlook this morning a, a first quarter update and they actually maintain Asia growth will sustain this year. Uh, the level of macro resilience, particularly across Southeast Asia, is there uh, and strong. And Singapore mortgages obviously remain a low-risk asset class. Um, but for the company itself, it did make record profit. I think what was important as well uh, for our bank, uh, UOB, was that it reported 3% year-on-year customer loan growth. So that's 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 crucial because obviously these banks are structured to increase their net interest margins, which UOBs was 2.14% uh, for the first quarter. Uh, some banks, as we've seen in the U.S., are not structured that way. But mm. just as important as NIM net interest margin is for net interest income, loan growth is super important as well. It's NPL uh, as well. That that ratio was stable at 1.6%, and the net fee and commission income uh, was lower. But the other non-interest income surged on record high trading and investment income. So it was it was a fa- fairly uh, resilient report for what is actually our second most traded stock here in Singapore. 
And and Singapore markets, as you say, it's really very dependent, isn't it, on first of all those three big banks, and then also C C technologies. They're really the four stocks that uh, dominate the uh, the the market, and investors seem to be interested in. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, if you break up every dollar, as I said, that that goes into our market, between twenty five and thirty cents, and it goes to the banks every day. You've got another twenty cents in the dollar that is into the real estate investment trust segment. And then, uh, and then around another twenty cents in the dollar is in the manufacturing stocks. And the the manufacturing sector, I guess, when you consider, you've got all these different clusters of industrial production. Uh, it is quite diversified. You've got one hundred stocks thereabouts that are manufacturing anything from food for ships to um, to as we said, semiconductors and precision engineering services. So. There's there's a very wide range, and it's obviously also very reliant on China. Um, and for that reason, you've also had our uh, exports in contraction since October, very much like Taiwan, South Korea, and now Malaysia. Mm. And how is the local economy doing? The Monetary Authority of Singapore, um, I think, surprised people a little bit, didn't it, by keeping its monetary policy yes. unchanged at the, the last meeting. Is it signalling that it thinks inflation is under control there? Yeah, it might be a little bit of first in, first out as well, because they did. They were one of the first central banks to move in in terms of uh, the Singapore nominal effective exchange rate appreciation, recenterings of the slopes and so forth. So we had three recenters, three appreciations between a twelve month period of October twenty twenty one and October twenty twenty two. You also had um, because we are quite trade dependent, and because of the decelerating global growth uh you also had to have the uh the singapore government at the last uh tightening uh bring out a 1.5 billion sing dollar uh i guess assurance uh counter cyclical type of uh support for the lower lower income uh part of the economy as well so the it was it was it was a, it wasn't it was it, it, i guess it it was a surprise in that uh, you know, two weeks before, you thought we the, the, we thought no that they would definitely hike because mm-hmm. you know as we thought Fed Reserve Fed funds rate mm-hmm. was also going to be up around six percent. But then what happened with uh, Signature and SVB? Obviously that because U.S. banks are so pivotable to financing and economic activity, uh, you know we saw this, a similar thing here happen where uh, expectations really did fall, and we did think the. Uh, the uh, the MAS would actually stand pat, as as we've seen in Malaysia, uh, as we've seen pretty much across the region. In fact, even Vietnam's actually turned accommodative mm. because uh, you know they should be generating six percent growth, but they're generating half that at the moment. So uh, you know we always knew inflation would be a little bit more contained than it is in the US, uh, but nonetheless we have to watch it very closely too in Singapore because we are extremely trade centred, forty cents in every dollar that uh, is spent domestically is actually on imports. So it is important for us to, you know, basically keep an eye on what's going on in the rest of the world. But at the same time, you know, we, 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 we're suffering from that wages, services, costs also going up with tight labour markets and businesses are still passing those costs through to consumers. 
Do you, do you think this is the trend now in Asia for, for central banks to maybe pause? Because not just the MAS, we've seen it with other central banks now in Australia, India, South Korea, Indonesia. They've all paused, haven't they, their, their policy tightening and seem to be focusing more now um, on growth prospects and, and maybe a slowdown in growth rather than uh, the fight against inflation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and the, I think the interesting thing about markets, is, as you know, is that they are dynamic. They do change. Paradigms, policy parameters do change as well. So if if the Fed is definitely uh, convinced that its its core inflation won't actually be sub 2% till something like 2025, that's a long way to go. And I think there might be other, you know, everything should not just be up to monetary policy in terms of setting the stage for that, you know, that tightrope between growth and inflation. And I do believe we might see other areas of, of government policy that can actually help to uh, impact or, or mitigate some of those increased cost of living that have actually come with the higher inflation and therefore uh, interest rates might not be the bill and end all. And we know, I mean, I've been listening to your program for for a long time now and, and I know you have a number of speakers that do take that thought and it has become increasingly so that monetary policy should not be the be all and end all, you know, of the mm. economic rudder for our for, for our day-to-day lives. And I think that's becoming a more mainstream thought now. And, and because of that too, uh, because of the impacts of the higher interest rates, particularly the speed in which they were, they were implemented, uh, it means that, yeah, the there has to be definitely somewhat of a pause now. Whether it's a, a peak rate remains to be seen, but uh, definitely everything's been caused for a pause. There's another economy in the region I wanted to ask you about, which I find quite interesting, and that's Indonesia. It's obviously yeah. uh, the the largest country in the in the region, um, and its economy seems to be doing pretty well, doesn't it? Uh, GDP is forecast by the central bank this year to rise between four and a half to five point three percent. Uh, the government has a budget surplus, which I presume is coming from all these IPOs, uh, you know, all the privatizations of governments, uh, of state-owned controlled banks and other, and other companies. Um, and, and that's helping the budget deficit and the market as well is doing pretty well, isn't it? Because of, you know, the, all these IPOs, it's one of the top fundraising uh, markets in the world now. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, somewhat of an economic sweet spot, uh, Peter, because... I mean, if you look over the past five years, um, Indonesia's stocks, they've lodged pretty much identical returns to what we've seen in terms of here in Singapore. Uh, you've got basically Bank of Indonesia. It, it, it is maintaining that its inflation expectations are well anchored. The repair is stable. You've got economic growth expected to be within the BI target of, I think, 45 to 5.3%. And, and since the end of... 2019. So over the the COVID years, you've got Jakarta Composite Index up 10%. We've got one particular stock that generates more than 90% of its revenue to Indonesia, Jardine Cycling Carriage, which I guess is the Jardines Group uh, ASEAN vehicle. That's up 25% since the end of 2019. And this is all the while while you've got FTSE Developing Index down around 10%. Um, I guess on the IPO front, you've got the ASEAN Secretariat uh, maintaining that the majority of ASEAN unicorns that have made significant M&A purchases uh, since COVID uh, started, um, or actually go back before then, between 2019 up to the um, to, up to the beginning of 2022, they were um, 
you know, the majority of them were Singapore, but also followed closely by Indonesia. And ASEAN unicorns, they are emerging also as sources of funding for other unicorns um, and for other startups in the region. So um, as as was reported, I think it was back in September last year, Gojek uh, back in 2018 had established its own venture fund, which was Go Ventures, and that has since invested in something like more than 24 startups across ASEAN. So um, in, in, for this kind of unicorn horizon out here in ASEAN that the industries that they're most relevant in is finance, technology, uh, e-commerce, transportation, logistics and travel and tourism as well. So um, you've also got, as as you kind of mentioned, government is also really supporting this. You've got several programs to support uh, small to medium term enterprise development, the financing, helping them expand international operations uh and then what's also interesting is on the fdi front the foreign domestic investment the big themes have been electronic vehicles semiconductors and digital economy uh work so you you've got you've got quite a lot in terms of consumer growth very vibrant you know if you if you when we all talk about v recoveries if you want to see one of the most steepest v's i've ever seen it's that consumer confidence in uh in indonesia last year which 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 uh returned to its uh high levels very quickly but at the same time electronic vehicle upstream mining green mining per se is also very big there's a lot of international investors wanting to come in there so Basically, the money is there, uh, and it's so that makes it a great time to uh, facilitate much capital financing for all these companies that uh, want to go public. So, yeah, you're, you're totally right. It is a very exciting place, Peter. Okay, and it's the market we're going to have to keep a watch on much more closely, I think, on the show. Jeff, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. That's an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, Peter. That's Jeff Howie, who is market strategist at the Singapore Exchange. Thank you for listening this morning. There's plenty more business and finance information in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow, and joining me to discuss the latest business and finance news will be Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, director at Staten Advice. I'll see you tomorrow. Money Talk. 